You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 20th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Briefing. We are coming to you live from the World Economic Forum in Davos. I am Markus Hippi. Coming up on today's program, as this year's gathering is wrapping up, we speak with the deputy editor-in-chief of Austria's Wiener Zeitung newspaper to recap the past five days. Also ahead, former US ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst, shares his thoughts on the ongoing war in Ukraine. We won the Cold War and the non-aligned movement sat on the side. So we will win this war of Putin's aggression against Ukraine with the Global South on the, on the side. Plus, we'll discuss the future of the UK's busiest airport as we meet the CEO of Heathrow Airport, John Holland Kay. And the Monocle team here at Davos joins me one last time. Carlotta Rebello, what do you have for us today? Hi, Marcus. It's the last day at WEF and we'll be looking at some of the key takeaways of this year's edition. More from Carlotta and Tom Webb too a bit later in the programme. That is all coming up in this special edition of The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippim. So welcome to Davos. This year's meeting by the World Economic Forum is ending and it's time to look at the biggest news, what was achieved and what this year's edition of the meeting will be remembered for. Joining me here at the studio is Thomas Seifert, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Wiener Zeitung, one of Austria's leading newspapers and as a matter of fact also one of the oldest in the world. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So, so Thomas, you've been, you've been busy for the last five days, as we have, as, as well, I've been seeing you rushing past me quite a few times here at the Congress Hall in Davos. What kind of an experience has this year's WEF meeting been for you? Well, it's always like a start into the new year. You come here in January and then uh, basically you, it's like looking at your compass and see which direction the year will be going. And uh, yeah, that was an intense five days. And uh, I think the takeaways are, on the one hand, um, we have this question of efficiency versus resilience. So basically, the, the economists here, people, the managers, the business people, I think they were very much, uh, of course, interested in the fact that so far, efficiency was king, right? Profits were king. And we have learned in the pandemic and now with the Ukraine war, yeah, you need buffers, you need uh, resilience. And I think that was one of the takeaways. Did we get any conclusions <laughs> what that would mean in practice then? Well, um, Yes, I think things are already happening. People are talking about uh, diversifying the supply chain. They're talking about uh, sourcing from different areas, not putting all their eggs in one basket. Definitely, it's not because of Davos. Let's be clear about that. It's uh, it's about uh, they have learned the lesson in, in the pandemic and now with Ukraine war. But still, I think here is a good opportunity for them to ask each other. You know, CEOs from you know the biggest companies of the world are here, and I'm, I'm very certain that when we are not there and when they have their private meetings, they will talk to each other, just like we hear in the students say, "Hey, what's up? You know, what? How are you doing? How are you tackling the problem?" And then. I think that's uh, what's also, of course, happening here at Davos, that these uh, conversations are very important. Did we get any breakthroughs this year? No, I don't think uh, breakthroughs, we can expect breakthroughs. But uh, if you look at the people that are here, uh, these high caliber people that you can imagine that they are talking and when they are talking, something will come out of it. Maybe not because of Davos, but it's just... 
you know, there is the next forum where they can meet. It might be the a G7 format. It might be some other formats. So I think it definitely brings the discussion forward. So if the question is, is this event useful? My answer is yes, of course it's useful. So it, it's something that uh, that you want to have on a calendar if you are in a top company, for sure, and also in politics. It's good to see. It's good to hear that you you think this event is useful, considering that I was just going to ask if you think WEF is is relevant in this situation we're seeing in the world at the moment. Yes, uh, I think that's a very good question because I remember a time when here it was even hard to imagine, but even crazier in a sense that the hustle and bustle, which when we look outside the studio window here is already dying down because it's Friday, uh, but it is intense, right? It's high energy that we see here. And what you see is the, the Chinese are missing largely. There were many more Chinese uh, people here in the past. And of course, because of the pandemic and travel restrictions that are still in place or are just now ending, you know, people are not ready to fly yet. Uh, so largely they're still missing. And of course, there used to be a Russia house here before the in, in Russian invasion uh, in Ukraine. Uh, no Russians here. Uh, of course, uh, but who would invite them? But that is, I think, certainly that uh, when we talk about the fragmentation of the world, which was a topic, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a reality. Are you seeing issues over there? We talk about the theme of this year's event was cooperation in a fragmented world. And at the same time, as you pointed out, obviously, the Russians aren't here. They're not allowed to come here. And we don't seem to have the Chinese here either. Yeah. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, a big concern. We had just heard the closing remarks. And, uh, of course, everybody's talking about if we want to, you know, solve problems in any realm, we have to cooperate. And this is, I think, what the forum wants to do uh, to create these platforms for cooperation. But of course, if you, it takes two to tango. And uh, yeah, there is in, in various aspects uh, the partner isn't here. And actually, would we want to have the Russians here? Question mark. On the other hand, who will be the people in Russia? And hopefully there will be peace someday. Who will be the people that we want to talk to? Do you think there would have been appetite to invite some Russians here? I spoke to some people from the forum. They said it was discussed, uh, but yes, uh, it's just whom, you know, the, the, whom would you invite? And then again, uh, you would totally frustrate the Ukrainians. And here you have this, uh, you know, I think the signal they want to send out, and we heard it also at the closing remarks uh, with, with, you know, uh, Christine Lagarde and others, Yes, we have been united. The West has been united. I think there was also, you know, a Japanese uh, high caliber VIP on the podium. So that is, I think, the message they want to send out. The West is united. We're here in Davos. Hear the message. We are here. We are together. We support Ukraine. That was the message that they definitely came out from, from mm -hmm. Davos. Thomas, outside of the most obvious news circle and these themes we discussed, is there something else you've seen in the Congress hall or outside that's been particularly striking or particularly memorable? Yes, it was, I think, two things. Number one, I, uh, I saw, more or less by chance, uh, Greta Thunberg, the climate activist, came out uh, from, from an interview outside the, the security zone here. And she was basically harassed by so-called journalists. I don't think they are journalists. They were basically a propaganda uh, in network in a way, a uh, Canadian propaganda network. And they harassed her, really, uh, you know, asking provocative questions and harassing her. That's what kind of questions? What did you hear happen? Uh, she, they said, like, oh, are you a child actor? Are you a child actor? What do you know about climate? So basically they harassed her uh, for, I don't know, minutes and minutes. It was impossible for, I would say, journalists, <laughs> other journalists, these people I, I don't consider journalists. They didn't have an accreditation, uh, we, we, did they? They didn't. No, 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 they didn't. They just, but of course, you can be in Davos. You know, you, you don't need accreditation just for here inside the Congress Center, but outside. And 
really harassed her. I mean, come on, if they harass a politician, I don't think it's 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 very rude. Also, even if you don't, uh, you know, I'm not the same opinion. But she's a, still she's a young woman. I mean, why would you do that? And the num number second point I would like to make is also about women. There was a fantastic panel with great women uh, on on the podium. Unfortunately, not enough men in the audience. I have to say, uh, I would wish there would be we would be 50-50 on this on this one. And it was, for instance, Masyalinejad. A wonderful Iranian activist. She had to flee to from Iran uh, to uh, the United States, I think, in 2009, and she get get this amazingly inspiring message. You know how women are on the forefront of political change, and it's not only Iran. I mean, uh, let's be clear about that. We had a lot of interesting, you know, women here, uh, being the prime minister of, of Finland or others. Um, it, it's amazing how you see, and this I think for Davos is is an uh, of course a steady progress more female voices, and you can see they make an impact. And again, coming back to the Iranian issue, I mean, the bravery is just mind-blowing, right? And you had, uh, uh, you ha they are uh, kind of the, the, the drivers of this revolution that's happening in Iran. And you had, of course, the Konovskaya, uh, the, the opposition figure in Belarus, she's facing a dictator there. So it's, it's, it's quite, you know, it was inspiring. If you ask me what was the most inspiring panel, that is it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the, the panel where I say, well, the energy was just amazing. How stressful is it being in an event like this, reporting on it, trying to decide what to focus on, considering how much there is going on over here? Well, uh, I am like many journalists, uh, a typical former person. So fear of missing out is, is part of my, of my life, I would say. And this is the ultimate therapy, because if you have FOMO, uh, if you are here and you have FOMO, you will, you know, you, you will end up, uh, you know, you need really uh, therapy afterwards. So here is, okay, you're being a Buddhist, you do what you do, you meet the people you meet, listen to the talks that you, that, that you attend, and this is the way to go. And just be in the presence, just focus on the people you meet. Otherwise, if you think, how many people, Marcus, did you see passing by? You say, oh, this is Al Gore. Oh, this is Lawrence Summers. This is Christine Lagarde. This is uh, this president. This is this prime minister. All people I'm sure you and me want to interview. But mm -hmm. it's not possible. We, we can only do one thing at one time. So FOMO is not for Davos. It doesn't rhyme at all. It's just finding quite in brief, if you may, what has... The World Economic Forum taught you over the years. It's your sixth or seventh time now that you're here. Yeah, well, for me, it's also like it's, it's the beginning of the year. This year, I was at the DLD conference in Munich also, which is also fantastic about getting uh, you know up to speed on tech issues. And what have I learned? Number one, uh, in let's say even in my professional life, what will impact my professional life is artificial intelligence. It's there. It's huge. It's not just ChatGPT. It's not just Dali and things like that. So. I will go home and I will try to learn as much as I can about what's out there apart from what we already know and what I already know. And then just, you know, also talking, for instance, there's wonderful arts here. Not only talk to the kind of the VIPs, the people with the white badge, but also trying to find out, uh, basically, whenever I have the chance, ask people, who are you? Uh, and, uh, you know, what are you doing? What, what makes you happy? What makes you tick? And then you learn a lot because they're basically, I would say, almost every single person you, that is here is interesting. Mm -hmm. There is something you, a question you want to ask, an insight you will get from them, and that is, uh, where do we have that? I mean, and to also cut to the chase, trying to get beyond the small talk and immediately kind of let's do, let's talk about things that you and I are interested in. Couldn't agree more. Thomas Seifert, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Austria's Wiener Zeitung newspaper. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is 13.11 here in Davos. Let's now cross over to London. Sophie Monan-Coombs has the day's other news headlines.
Thanks, Marcus. Ukraine said it expected strong decisions from NATO and other countries that are meeting today to discuss whether to send modern battle tanks. The defence minister's talks at Ramstein Air Base in Germany follow Ukrainian warnings that Russia is seeking to re-energise its almost 11th-month-old invasion. Peru's president, Dina Boluarte, says her administration stands strong in the face of anti-government protests. Violent clashes in recent weeks have left dozens dead and many others injured. She says those responsible will face the full force of the law. Inflation in Japan has jumped to a 41-year high. The index of consumer prices rose 4% in December from a year earlier, double the Bank of Japan's target level. It adds pressure on the central bank to put up its interest rates to help ease the rising cost of living. And veteran US folk rock star David Crosby has died aged 81. He helped set up two major bands in the 1960s, The Birds and Crosby, Stills and Nash, and was renowned for his guitar playing and vocal harmonies. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you in Davos, Marcus. Thank you very much, Sophie. Now, yesterday, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, John E. Herbst, hosted an event here at Davos. It was titled Ukraine's Energy Infrastructure from Destruction to Resilience. Just ahead of the session, Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, asked him about the energy situation in Ukraine. Moscow is deliberately trying to destroy Ukrainian energy infrastructure. As a result, the country's lost approximately 50% of its electricity capacity. And Putin's design is, since his military is incompetent to win on the battlefield, to terrorize the Ukrainian people into demanding surrender. And that is actually not going to work. So we're here in Davos. There's quite a lot of representation from countries that are still buying Russian oil, like India. What is your response to that? Look, um, we won the Cold War, and the non-aligned movement sat on the side. So we will win this war of Putin's aggression against Ukraine with the Global South on the side. Unfortunately, but it's not essential. How can the Global South achieve this? Well, I mean, if, if they were farsighted, states people in the Global South would say, gee, if a large neighbor can, without any reason, attack and destroy its uh, neighborhood and country, that's very dangerous for us. But they don't seem to understand that what Putin is doing is assaulting the world security and economic system that has provided peace from great power war, the absence of great power war, and extraordinary growth, economic growth. Would you say the global north were united against Russia? Well, I don't know if you call it the global north, but the, you might call it the, the global west, which means, of course, the United States, Europe, Japan, Australia, South Korea, understand the stakes. Europe are a bit... There, there are a lot of disagreement with how they're treating Russia at the moment, would you not say? Well, there have been different points of view. The Putin firsthayers have been completely discredited by Moscow's large invasion. I mean, you know, um, President Steinmeier in Germany was a prominent Putin firsthayer. Even now he says our policy for the last years have been a disaster. Unfortunately, that has not turned into German resolution to make sure that Putin loses in Ukraine by sending the Leopard tanks. But that's on the shoulders, not Steinmeier, but Schultz. Davos ends tomorrow. Has enough been discussed? Has enough been agreed? Well, um, Davos is really not a place for agreements. It's a place for discussion. And there's been plenty of discussion on this issue. Certainly here at Ukraine House, a very uh, sober conversation has taken place. Recognition of the, uh, the high stakes involved in Putin's war on Ukraine. And I think more broadly in Davos, that, that theme is also sound. 
Your session on energy today, what do you hope to discuss and come out well, off the back I, of it? I am confident what we'll discuss. We're going to talk again about Putin's brutal war on energy, the remarkable steps that have been taken in Ukraine, but also with support from the United States, the EU, Great Britain, to make up for some of the damage done and to ensure that the Ukrainian people have a certain amount of electricity, a certain amount of power, and that the Ukrainian military can continue its successful operations in the field. So when we convene next year, Davos 2024, what do you hope to see? Well, I hope that the Biden administration overcomes its own timidity in sending more advanced weapons to Ukraine, ditto with Berlin, um, and that we send, for example, longer-range artillery, the advanced tanks, Western military aircraft, so that a year from now, Ukraine has cut the bridge, the land bridge to Crimea, and Russian forces in the south are in retreat, and we can already begin to see the end of Putin's great misadventure in Ukraine. Should Biden be here now? Are you happy with the representation? Well, Biden doesn't need to be here. Um, Biden needs to send the long-range artillery to Ukraine and the Abrams tanks to Ukraine. That's what Biden needs to do. And Germany as well. Well, Germany even more because they're even trying to block the sale of other countries' Leopard tanks to, well, not the sale, the transfer of other countries' Leopard tanks to Ukraine. And that's just a disgrace. That was former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst. He was speaking to Monocle Storm Webb yesterday. You are listening to a special edition of The Briefing, live from Davos on Monocle 24. It is 1318 here in Davos. Next, on the briefing, we turn to the skies. Climate change has obviously been a major theme here at Davos. What this means is that aviation and the future of it have also been a hot topic. After speaking at Greek House about the future of sustainable aviation, John Holland Kay, the CEO of Heathrow Airport, caught up with Monocle's Tom Webb to discuss the airport's future and its relationship with countries around the world. I think Greece is one of the most popular destinations for people in the UK. It's guaranteed sunshine, but it's also important from a business point of view. It's a significantly growing market, and so we're very proud of the connections that we have with Greece. So at the panel today, I just watched it, there was a look at the future of aviation. You mentioned that Virgin Atlantic is going to do this first ever transatlantic net zero emission flight from Heathrow to JFK. How are plans going and how excited are you about this? Well, this is going to be a, a milestone, I think, uh, demonstrating that long-haul flight with sustainable aviation fuel is a reality. And although this will be the first, it won't, won't be the last, I hope that this will just become normal very soon. And this is something that is important the UK takes a lead on. The SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, is a huge new market that the UK could be a global leader in. So the fact that the government has initiated this competition for the first long-haul flight to New York with uh, SAF from Heathrow and as a, a first of type is very significant. It's a statement of intent that the UK wants to be a leader and we should be. We've got the raw materials, we've got the technical skills and we have taken a lead in decarbonising aviation and we should get the benefit of that in the UK. So at Heathrow 2022 traffic ended around 76% of pre-pandemic levels. 
Do you think we're going to return to those 2019 levels anytime soon? I'm not sure actually how quickly we will get back to 2019 levels. We need to make sure as an aviation sector that we have the capacity to meet any level of demand so the passengers can have the smooth journey through Heathrow that they have always expected. Uh, so that is what we are working on. We certainly have some headwinds. Covid is back in some way and we've seen governments reintroducing restrictions because of that. We've got the economic headwinds, we've got of course the war in the Ukraine which deters a lot of people from travelling particularly from the US to come into Europe but uh, from my point of view we just have to focus on rebuilding capacity across the aviation sector so that if you're traveling you can fly with confidence knowing that we will look after you at Heathrow. So you've previously said that you would provide an update on the timeline for Heathrow's third runway about early 2023. How have things moved on? Well, of course we had to put the third runway work on hold when the pandemic hit. We're about halfway through our planning application preparation at that point so we're just taking a look at how we restart that so i'll be able to talk about that a little bit more after we've completed that work but what we've seen over the last few years is just how critical it is that heathrow is able to expand we've seen how uh, many of the arguments that politicians used when they were backing the expansion of Heathrow when when they voted four to one in Parliament have been borne out. We've seen the way in which long-haul flying has concentrated into Heathrow during the pandemic. We've seen how when spare capacity was available at Heathrow for the first time, many long-haul airlines, including from important markets like India, that hadn't been able to get into Heathrow, suddenly were able to and came in at scale. And we've also seen the way in which more UK destinations have been able to connect into Heathrow, giving those regions the benefits of the global connectivity that Heathrow offers. So the promise of Heathrow connecting all of Britain to, to the growing markets of the world was really borne out during the pandemic. So that's why it is critical that particularly as uh, an independent nation outside of the EU that uh, Heathrow expands. One other thing which I never thought that we would see is the counterfactual if you like. What happens if Heathrow doesn't expand? Well. For many people, they'd say, well, it's fine that we should, either, that we should just fly through uh, Paris or Amsterdam if we want to get to global destinations. But what we saw during COVID was that we were cut off from the continent three times. So if our entire economic strategy was based on connecting through France or Amsterdam, that would have been a failed strategy. If we, and, and it just shows the importance for the UK as an independent country having an independent world-leading hub airport. So in the UK, it's been hard to ignore strikes causing havoc over the last few months. Can we expect a smoother summer out of Heathrow this year? Well, strikes have been a factor across the UK. Actually, they haven't had much impact on aviation so far, and I hope it will stay that way. Our focus is on passenger service. That's the kind of organisation we are. The, and the main thing that we need to focus on is to get the whole aviation sector back to full capacity. If you look at aviation around the world, there's been a huge reduction in uh, the number of people working in the sector, the amount of experience there is, the amount of investment in facilities at the aircraft over the last couple of years as airports and airlines and ground handlers have tried to conserve cash during COVID. 
Now the market demand has come back very quickly. We've done an amazing job to be able to scale up as much as we have, but there are still some scars in the sector that that need to heal. And our focus for the next 12 months is to get the whole sector back to full capacity. This isn't just a UK issue, by the way. Uh, if you go to Canada or the US or even the Middle East and certainly continental Europe, you'll see many airports and airlines that are still well below their usual capacity. So that's why our, our focus is uh, let's get back to full capacity, uh, get uh, everyone back to work, let's invest in the facilities so that you as a passenger can be confident that whether you're travelling for Easter, whether you're travelling over the summer, you're going to have a great service travelling through Heathrow and that's what I am focused on. John Holland K, the CEO of Heathrow Airport, there you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables. And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Welcome back. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. It's 21.25 in Tokyo, 13.25 here in Davos and 7.25 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Now, this year's edition of the World Economic Forum has just ended. And to wrap things up and to look at what else was happening here outside of the biggest news stories, I'm joined by my Monocle colleagues, Tom Webb and Carlotta Rebello. Carlotta, who is here in the studio with me, what do you think? What were the most memorable moments for you this time around? On a personal note, I thought it was quite interesting to hear the speech of Ukraine's First Lady Olena Zelenska, the first speech she gave, where, of course, you talked about the war, but she highlighted the issue of food security. And of course, we know Ukraine plays a pivotal role in uh, supplying food and grains to much of the African continent and some of the global south too. And this war has definitely impacted uh, residents and citizens on that part of the world. Um, Also, uh, for me personally, I thought it was great just how much cities were in focus here and particularly the case for nature-based solutions. This is how to build better, more sustainable cities. And there was a really interesting talk on how to combine nature-based solutions with technology. And um, that was for for sure one of the most engaging discussion, one of the smaller ones, but the crowd was definitely paying attention. Tom, you are joining us from outside the Congress Hall. You've been focusing on what's happening in all these various houses outside, houses run by organizations, businesses and countries. And at the same time, you've got a fair bit of Alpine air as well. What do you think, what have been the most memorable moments for you? What will you remember for years to come? such a loaded question there, Marcus. I've made no secret of the extreme hospitality and also the outright frostiness by some of the countries and organizations here. It's the last day most buildings are now closed and aggressively turfing people out. Shout out to Hub Culture who have rescued me. I've got some warmth here inside right now. Um, Davos, 
as I say, is, is over. You said it too. But upstairs here in the Ice House, there are 100 people discussing the future of lithium. Um, a memorable moment for me because I was just thrust on stage with a microphone for my opinion on the matter. Um, and what did you say? Well, <laughs> I had something in my back pocket. I always do. I said, uh, what happens when the Congo runs out of cobalt? Um, I don't know. Cars stop being made. It was a nervous but memorable moment for me. Excellent. Um, Tom, staying with you, how well do you think this event has been organised? Well, <laughs> from my perspective, my perspective is representing the public's perspective. I have no pass. I've just waltzed in. And it's not a good one. Um, that, yes, there are some lovely programs of events. They are put together online. They're accessible. They all run to time. Of course they do. We're in Switzerland. However, even those that are, are rigorously open to the public in writing, it's never really clear if you can actually get in or not. This isn't a capacity issue. It's a currency one. How much are you worth as an individual? I mean, an example yesterday, there was a morning breakfast hosted by Will I Am, and there were only 10 people there. Now, why high net worth is the only currency here? It's quality over quantity. Mm. You will not get in if you don't have a name. Well, I think, Carlotta, we have a different opinion over here inside the Congress Hall, don't we? Yes, here inside the Congress Hall for the accredited attendees of the World Economic Forum, I think uh, the show was on full display. The only complaint we can have is that uh, the Swiss are quite prompt with their lunchtime, which ends at uh, 1.30 p.m. Uh, Davos time, which uh, is exactly when we finish broadcasting this show. So there's been a few times where we've had to um, continue our afternoon on protein bars and, uh, and so fruit but it's been uh, amazing to see the organization here we're talking about over 11 or 12 um, different meeting rooms plus the gigantic uh, plenary hall and all of them have been packed we see the screens just around us that say uh, how many seats are left in each of the rooms because we have to swipe our cards to go in and very rarely do you have more than one seat left in either of these places just quickly if, if you may staying with you Carlosa, what do you think you learned this year well, I learned that there is really a power in bringing people together. I had attended the May edition last year without snow, with COVID restrictions and with half the attendees. And while that was, of course, very productive and uh, great, uh, being here this year when it's back in full swing and just the amount of people you bump into here at the Congress Hall, um, it, it does show that there is a huge benefit, not only for our job as journalists, but for the CEOs and world leaders and activists to come together and actually just have these casual conversations over coffee uh, while they're in town mm -hmm. uh, for five days. Tom, as I mentioned already, you've been looking at all those various houses outside. How do you think they reflect how the world is changing? It's a good question. And actually, if you subscribe to the Free Monocle newsletter, you would have seen my article on what these buildings mean for the economic year ahead. Now, there is a big presence of so-called friends of Russia, uh, the Global South. They are here in force, some of them unashamedly gobbling up the cheap Russian oil and massively boosting their own economies because of it. United Arab Emirates, they're touting their tourism boom here. This is where Russians are holidaying, by the way. And India, who have the biggest presence here. They've got eight buildings on the promenade. No sessions whatsoever on addressing challenges ahead because they're claiming to be global recession proof. 
So the agenda here has been very Eurocentric up in the Congress Centre, very gloomy. But the Global South have been dominating proceedings down here with a great display of wealth and optimism. Just by Nicolas and Tom, the same question for you. I think it's time for some kind of shout out. Who are those individuals who have made you enjoy this year's edition of this gathering here in Davos. I'm going to start by by naming the security who have been actually amazingly smiley and friendly and I actually I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. Oh, so we have a fan of Swiss security here. Uh, Marcus, I feel like you're prompting me to say that the individual that I've made my week is you and Tom because we spent so many hours together. Uh, I look forward to go back to my desk and stare at you again. Exactly, Tom. <laughs> no, I'm not naming you two. I'm naming Mark. God bless Mark. He is here at the Zurich booth with fresh coffee, with soup, a warm smile. He's been making my day. He's been keeping me happy, well-fed and warm. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Tom Webb. And thank you, Carlotta Rebello, for this double session. And that's all for this special edition of The Briefing. And indeed, it marks the end of our live coverage here at the World Economic Forum. It was produced by Carlotta Rebello here in Davos, and our studio manager back in London was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I am Markus Hippi. Thanks for listening, and goodbye from Davos.